0: Good morning, and welcome back to the latest episode of the Silmarillion Film Project, the first one of 2016. I'm your co-host Dave Kale, and with me as always are the Tolkien maven Trish Lambert and the Tolkien professor Corey Olson, and happy new year to you guys.
1: Happy new year well, to you I got guys. Billed,
0: I got billed before the Tolkien professor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's the new, it's the new 2016 look, you know, it's, uh, it's there a. there
0: you go. There you go. <laughs> Plus Corey's now the Star Wars professor.
1: So. Oh yeah, exactly. Ah. Now, now the Star Wars professor. Um, uh, yeah, no, anyway, so, uh, that, welcome everybody. And, uh, you know, it's kind of amazing thinking about the fact that it's 2016 now and thinking back to you know starting up riddles in the dark but...
0: podcast
1: I well I recorded my first podcast back in uh, 2007 so this is like my tenth year now basically entering the tenth year of of uh, you know doing podcasts um, so yeah things have come a long ways you know kind of thinking back even just thinking back I mean wasn't it wasn't it 2012 or the end of 2011 that we started Riddles in the Dark? It was way Man. way back then, right? So
0: I was trying to figure out. I was trying to. I was trying to explain that to someone. Uh, someone the other day, like when when Riddles in the Dark started. And I was like, when, the, when did that start? Yeah, and, <laughs> Jeez, I mean, it was like like 1997.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you realize it was it was more than five years ago that we did the we started the Silmarillion seminar. I mean, oh my it's, gosh! You're kidding? Yeah, oh, wow. it's it's that's a it's, that's a long time. Anyway, so sorry, it's uh, easy to sort of start getting uh, all retrospective it's and all maudlin uh, <laughs> in, in the new year. Uh, but welcome.
0: My we're fascinated by, uh, by family
1: <laughs> F- family history. Exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just it. Um, how are your very briefly? How are your holidays?
1: Good, good. Unexpectedly exciting. Uh, that is a, a lot of, oh, sort of more travel and activity than I expected. Uh, some of it was kind of interesting, such as like uh, getting delayed in an absolutely ridiculously slow-moving security line and missing my flight with my family. Oh my gosh! Uh, so, you know, I tried, yeah, that was fun. But we, we, we made it uh, eventually, sort of. Um, it was, uh, it was... Uh, It was interesting, but anyway, it was it was it was good. I got to uh, hang out with some Mythgard people out in Phoenix, which is where I was uh, between Christmas and New Year's, and we saw Star Wars together again. It was it was cool. Fantastic. Um, Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, so yeah. How how about how about you guys?
2: Oh, mine was quiet. Yeah. Always blissfully quiet.
1: Nice.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, How about you, Dave? What'd you do?
0: Um. Let's see. We so for the for the for the main sort of Christmas holidays, we stayed in Southern California. Didn't travel anywhere, um, which was kind of nice to to be in LA. Although each year we think like, oh, you know, one of these days we'll have to spend the holidays here and and see more of our friends. But then all of our friends go back to visit their parents. <laughs> right. <today>. right. <laughs> so they're all gone. Uh, the one we did do. Um, we did do. Uh, we went to the the Rose Bowl on. Uh, Again, oh to wow! To see never play, which is always fun. So cool. Yeah, but it was good. It was good. I missed you guys though.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's been it's, it's been a long time. I, I was going to say, Trish. I was going to say, as soon as you said it's uh, blissfully quiet as always, I was expecting that to be the cue for Buddha to start shrieking in the background. <laughs> he would have,
2: but he's shut away. He always uh-huh. is shut away on podcasts. <laughs> that's, that's
1: that's good. he does like it to does like to make his presence known. Uh, he likes to wait.
2: No. What do you mean, blissfully no. quiet?
0: <laughs> You know, one one difference uh, one difference with this time of year is no no Mythmoot this year, which is a Yes. Yes, this is our we
1: we're finally it. making the shift from because uh, with the end of the Hobbit films, uh, we're we're sort of taking Mythmoot to its next level. The main the, the main idea there is to, we we've had so much fun at Mythmoot. We want to, you know, we we were going to decouple it from uh, that time of year. It was only being held in, like, January because of the Hobbit the films. of Winter. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh... We I want to stop holding it in the dead of winter in the nor- in the northeast. <laughs> that 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 was that was one goal. Um, another goal is uh, was just to expand it um, to make it into a, a sort of a, a, a instead of just a weekend conference, which was always it was always so much fun but so short. You know, so hard to 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 do even half the things that we really wanted to do together when we were all together. And I want to expand it and make it into a a full like three and a half four day conference instead of just the just the you know day and a half basically that we were able to get. Um, so we're gonna do. So we're gonna start making longer. We're gonna, it's gonna be every other year, but we're gonna make it longer so that people can, you know, plan now, the time you to know, come. And,
2: yeah. Waxing nostalgic as we are, <laughs> I, I do want to say that listening to Corey talk just now it makes it sound like this was always the plan, you know, and that we always, <laughs> from like we always were, you know, that we did this like consciously, you know, in the Hobbit film. It was not, it did not start that way. <laughs> no,
1: it didn't. St- the first one was almost perfectly spontaneous. I mean, we, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, I think
2: you would, this was, you're talking about a plane you always had, but you had always, like, thought it would be somewhere down the line. Not yes. Yet. It didn't,
1: it wasn't yes. supposed
2: to have happened as soon as it did. Exactly. That first myth mood was completely like, because the new Hobbit film was coming out, people wanted to f- literally fly to come to where Corey was to watch the movie with him yeah, and Corey was together.
1: like well gosh if people are going to do that we should make it a conference we should do something more <laughs> than just hang out and watch the movie yeah so we hung out and watched the movie and had a little conference and it was awesome yeah no, it was know, some...
2: having Peter Beagle as our first guest not a bad way to start yeah. off with yeah, it being, that being so so it was pretty funny yeah
1: <laughs> Yeah. So anyway, no, it's it's been it's been it's been crazy. But anyway, okay. Yeah, we should we should enough family history. Yeah, we, should. we should move forward here. That's right. move and, oh, okay, forward. well, sort of forward. Guesses. We should move <laughs> into talking about the uh, uh, Silmarillion Project and uh, begin that by moving backwards and talking about last time. So we have a few comments about uh, what we talked about last time, um, and the main thing that I want to so I, there are three basic um things I would want to address from the people raised in the discussion boards since last time first is robert brown and he's sort of g- going back to the lamps for a minute um and sort of questioning our idea that the lamps were a bad idea. He thinks that the lamps being a bad idea is a bad idea, um, and uh, I always have uh, great respect for Robert's comments. Robert is uh, uh, one of our great ex. He's one, one of the one of the people in all of uh, uh, of our uh, Mythgard things. I can always count on as if know- you're knowing the texts really, really well. Um, and I, I I do respect the idea, Robert. Um, you know, he says uh, that uh, you know basically. The, the the lamps is supposed to be the spring of all of arda and so to make the valar flawed or selfish from their beginning um uh the, so first of all that that it kind of it kind of cheapens uh it, it reduces that that whole idea of the spring of arda and it also um undermines the 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 sort of the fall that they have later on if we are anticipating you know the 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 retreat to valinor and enclosing the light of the trees in Valinor, and basically not sharing that with Middle Earth, and walling that away as they did, um, that was, um, you know, that that was a bad idea. That was the the moment where the the Valar sort of make the wrong choice. So to have them already kind of doing that. Um, with the lamps is is uh, you know he was arguing just kind of undermining that or making the making their actual fall into sort of a mere repetition or continuation rather than making that a really significant moment and i I, I, I think that that's a really good point um, i I think th- my own response to that I guess would be first that I don't I don't mind having that be a repetition, but I agree it shouldn't be a mere repetition. Um, That we don't want to be in a place where it looks like we're just having people continue to do exactly the same thing over and over again. I think it's an anticipation. I think, you know, if we did it right, I think what we would be doing there is showing that the lamps... um, the lamps are... It shows, the, it shows the beginning of the impulse that's going to lead them to make that long, wrong decision later on. It's not that I think that the lamps themselves are a terrible idea. I mean, the going to Valinor... Like, that's where we were talking about them doing the wrong thing for the right reasons. Um, I don't think that I would go so far, maybe I did go so far, and I don't remember now, um, as saying that the lamps themselves were, were, a, were a bad idea. Um, certainly all- not on the same order of magnitude. I think the, the genesis of that concept was sort of people asking
0: the question of like, like, what was the status of the l- of of light um, mm-hmm. in, in sort of quotes uh, previous to the lamps? So like, did the lamps create light out of nothing, or was light always there, sort of ambient, like a perpetual twilight in, in all corners of the earth? And following on that thought, we asked the question: Okay, if light was already there did the lamps in, then sort of concentrate it and sort of suck it up from other places and create dark corners. So, so right. it sort of started us down this, this thought experiment about where did the light come from and if the light was already there and the purpose of the lamps was to sort of you know, drink it up and organize it and suck it up did that deprive certain regions and certain creatures of light in the little dark corners, and in that case, was this necessarily a good idea? Were they basically concentrating the light for the benefit of a few privileged, um, um, you know, uh, inhabitants, including themselves, but, al- but also taking it away from other people? I think that's kind of where the, the... And if that was the case, is there sort of a sense in which making the lamps maybe isn't necessarily good?
1: Right, right. Yeah, and and I guess I guess what I, again what I would say there is it's it's not the same deci- it's not the same decision having the lamps concentrated in Middle-earth. Well, they're, they're still in Middle-earth. I mean, like basically it's the idea thinking about this in a really kind of crude geographical fashion, Almarin is near the middle, right? So they have what they what they end up creating According to the way that we were describing it, is you know this sort of warm, bright center, but the edges are are left dark, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but it's still the center, and there still is kind of the idea that that you know the Valar and their light and influence is sort of moving out from there. Um, yes, they do create you know light in the middle and darkness on the outside, but it still is, they're still occupying the middle. With Valinor, they go off to the edge, right? They go off to the western edge and wall it up so that the majority is left dark. And that's where we can see, again, it's the same impulse, but it's taken to the next step. And that next step, yep. I, you know, so I wouldn't go so far necessarily as to say, you know, them doing the lamps was a wrong thing to have done, but it shows the impulse that's going to lead them to do the wrong thing later on. Yep, yep. So, I guess that's the uh, distinction that I would want to make and it's and it's these kinds
0: of questions i think I, I mean i think I think that sort of question is sort of inevitable when you start sort of trying to figure out the metaphysics of how these things work and it, yes and it, and, it, and you, it does make you wonder. Um, I don't know if Tolkien thought much about this in sort of the, the, the versions throughout, you know, the histories of Middle Earth. Like if he was refining this idea of the lamps or maybe even jettisoned it, um, since I, I'm really not well-read on those. But I, it makes you wonder if he'd had an extra 50 years to keep working on on these ideas that maybe he might have, you know. Even there was a...
2: Fifty years, in addition to like the fifty years he already had to work on it. Well, <laughs> well,
1: he needed the, at least fifty more years. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's you, it, time <laughs> true. You
2: know,
0: it it but is funny. Christopher's lifetime too, although he didn't really change the story. Right. So that's right. true. It is, it is funny. We all we all mock uh, George R. R. Martin for the for, the, for his <laughs> slowness true. and the position he put himself in. But the only reason nobody says anything like that about Tolkien is because no one was no one was in the real in real time actively waiting for him to finish. <laughs> and he, actually, that's not true, right? Didn't he get hammered? Weren't his publishers harassing him mercilessly oh goodness, while he was yeah. writing Lord of the Rings?
1: Well, they were for a while before they gave up. Um, the, <laughs> the, real, the real merciless hammering was um, uh, his, the delay for the appendices. But even there, I mean, like Crimea yeah. River, the, there was a, the idea. When the Fellowship of the Ring came out, the Two Towers was published pretty quickly afterwards, like a matter of of months afterwards. But then there was like more than an entire year's delay before the Return of the King came out because Tolkien was dithering about the appendices and not getting them done as he was supposed to. Um, And everyone, of course, I mean, the gap is so, so, you know, so remember, we've got like, you know, uh, Frodo was alive, but taken by the enemy the end and now you have to wait for a, you know for a, for a year. But the thing is of course people growing up in our generation are like wait they only had to wait 1 year? Like you know whiners? Like what are you complaining about? You know that's that's well, I, perfectly normal.
0: I don't think I don't think Tolkien would have been able to survive in the age of social media. No, I oh, don't my think goodness.
1: so. I don't think so. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's actually um yeah I, I can't even it like makes the brain explode trying to imagine I mean he, he had a hard enough time with the telephone for crying out loud I mean it's it's hard to imagine but, um, but I, I don't think this I don't think this idea that, that the the lamps lamps aren't
0: just, you know, sort of uh, unadulterated good idea. I don't um, that they, you know, maybe there was some core of maybe like as you say just like the first step towards making mistakes. I don't know. I I don't think it's that alien because it certainly certainly Tolkien has a Im- has imagined at times versions of the Valar that are just total screw-ups. So
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, you no, know, exactly. And and I mean one of the thing I'd have to say is I mean uh, Robert is Right, you know, as as Robert is almost always right, that the 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 text does suggest that the lamps are in the far north and the far south of the world and that Amarin is where their light meets in the middle, rather than being where the light is concentrated. My problem with that Uh, is my problem with that is it doesn't work. You can say that in a mythic story. But if you attempt to depict that in a visual medium, it doesn't... Do you know how tall those freaking lamps would have to be to extend (laughs) light over all of Middle Earth from the extreme north to the extreme south? I mean, there's a reason. (laughs) There's a reason the only... Like, the the light... uh, I mean, it's just... Like... It doesn't matter how tall you would make them. I mean, you could make them a mile high. And they still wouldn't... I mean... Uh, like I can't see the Rocky Mountains from where I am, right? And the Rocky Mountains are more than a mile high. I, I mean, you'd have we'd have to talk about the lamps being like you know atmospheric heights, essentially. Yeah. And I, you know, it, so it, 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 the lamps lighting the world as it's depicted in uh, Chapter One of the Silmarillion is one of those things which is kind of. Lovely in mythic concept, but it does, but physically with the size of Middle Earth, it really doesn't work, um, and that's the reason why. And I didn't even really talk about this much at the time, but that's why I would suggest we move the lamps towards the middle and have it be more of a concentration of light in the middle, um, because physically I don't even see how we could possibly depict you know visually depict that um, with any kind of uh, plausibility. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I think that that's an issue, um, and that's fine. Um, and, and frankly, this is the kind of thing, it's this kind of thinking that, I mean, it's not that Tolkien never did this kind of thinking, but... He only... Um, I mean, it's kind of an interesting thing to look at. Okay, here's a really big topic. Like, sort of the way that Tolkien's own sub-creative process changed over the years. Um, in in his earlier years, he was willing to think in more sort of purely mythic w- mythic ways. Like, uh, you think of, like, the, the with the, the sun and the moon and the flat earth mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Right. Um, he was willing to do things like that without really thinking about... You know, sort of astronomical plausibility and stuff. It was later in his life that he s- was sort of saying, okay, look, if this is really the world, then like it really would have been orbiting the sun the whole time, and the Valar would have known this, and therefore the elves would have known this. So to say that there are these elvish legends about the flat earth and the, you know, the sun and the moon being carted below the world through a tunnel. Is absurd, you know, and so he he was changing his conception in later years to say that these were actually human myths be, said in ignorance of the reality of the solar system. Um, mm. And I don't really like those. I, I mean, I kind of disagree with him that he has to change things in that way, that he has to. But, but again, I feel like if we're going to it's one of the things you do when you visually depict it, you kind of exit that mode of sort of simple... Mythic storytelling,
0: um, yeah. Uh, so um, certainly understandable why that would, why, why that would why you why that might especially for somebody who spends all of his time thinking
1: about this stuff why that would gradually start to bother him more and more. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and it's really as he was filling it out, you know, as these cease to be the stories from you know just sort of mythic stories from an earlier time and, and be you know the whole the the time that he spent in especially in the later portions of in the post lord of the rings portions of his life just kind of writing essays and explaining how everything fits together that was the you know that kind of pure sub creative work was a lot of what he was really focused on more more than storytelling per se i mean you look at like the last uh, you know the last couple volumes of uh, of the history of middle earth there's not nearly as much storytelling that he was doing there's just a lot of uh, um sort of fact correction and things, yeah. Yeah. Um... And uh several people are talking about the flatness of middle Earth and how you know light would extend from a uh, from a, a a pillar across a flat world much better than a round world. I'm going to defer the flat world discussion to a later time um, <laughs> We're going to get the rising of the sun and moon. I think that you know the, I that I think that the 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 significance of the Sun and moon within tolkien's world is such that I don't want to adapt the sort of again, his his later conception when he was going to go back and rewrite the whole thing with the sun and moon there from the beginning. I don't want to do that. I think the mythic power of the rising of the sun and the moon and the way that those moments happen within the stories is sufficiently powerful that we want to follow that. Um, but when we do, I'm going to want to talk about the Flat Earth. And uh, and I I don't want to do that today. <laughs> so I'm going to defer that until... Um, season three. So come back to me in 2018, and we'll talk about the flat Earth at that point. Um. So okay, there we are. So that was topic number one. <laughs> topic number two, um, is uh, the visit of Manway to Melkor. I had suggested last time that I wanted Melkor. Uh, you know, people had been talking about maybe Omo going to visit, or maybe Aule going to visit. Uh, uh uh Melkor uh in Utumno and I was saying that I wanted it to be Manwe. Um and there was uh there was a lot of debate about this on the uh on the discussion board. Uh Mithlewin, whose comments I thought were really wonderful. Um I mean uh, there were many very wonderful comments I really wanted to spotlight. I thought Lewin, I thought you were on fire uh on the discussion boards uh <laughs> this time. Um but anyway, she was, uh, uh, she was commenting that um, we need to make sure that we don't undermine... Manway, which I totally agree about, and especially she pointed very rightly to what could be a a very easy temptation for us to yield to—to end up putting Manway and Varda into the clueless husband, wise wife pattern that we get with Kaliborg and Goadriel and Thingol and um, Melian—you know—to make sort of Manway and Varda anticipate that it would be easy. To depict Manway as a bit of a doofus, I agree. It would be easy to do that, and I I certainly agree it's important for us not to do that. Um, however, I
0: don't think I don't think this yeah. has
1: to be depicted in a doofus way, right? Right, right. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I I I think um, basically uh, Nicholas Palazzo. Um, who uh, uh and uh Nick by the way it was great meeting you last night in uh, uh, uh seeing you face to face in the uh, uh sort of spontaneous Star Wars discussion I was having last night. Um but anyway, so uh Nick said almost exactly with a Star Wars reference said almost exactly the same thing that I had been thinking about Manway's visit. Um uh he said basically it's uh, the visit of Manway to Melkor is not sort of an indignity on his part. It's an an act of humility on his part that he is going to, he is lowering himself to go and speak to Melkor. Um, You know, yes, there could be a danger of him, um, you know, sort of put, you know, seeming to abase himself before Melkor and coming with hat in hand. But I think that that's exactly that kind of risk. It's It's exactly that sort of, concern for the preservation of his own dignity that Manwe should not have. It's one of the things that should differentiate Morgoth and Manwe. Um, Morgoth is the one who's always worried about his own dignity. Um, and uh, and Manway is not. Um, so so, yes, that, that that humility, the Star Wars reference that Nick was making was that it's it's uh, like uh, in the Return of the Jedi when Luke, um, you know, is going to says he's going to go and he's going to confront Vader um, and Leia advises him not to. And he just says, I have to try. Right. That is he 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 it's not that he, he's doing this because he thinks it's going to work. It's not shrewdness. Um, it is not in that sense wisdom which is leading him to go and uh uh and seek out vader he's doing it because it's the right thing to do um even though he suspects that he's probably going to die um in doing it it's it's an act of uh of of uh, not only of humility but also something almost like active self sacrifice. Um, and therefore, a really beautiful parallel to uh, 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 Han Solo and Kylo Ren. But never mind, I'm not going to go there. Point is, uh, <laughs> I'll, 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 get, I'll get too distracted. The point is, um, Manway um, does that same kind of thing. So, I mean, him coming to, you know, so there, but there's another thing that I would emphasize. Remember, none of them yet are seeing Melkor as an enemy. None of them are, you know, I, I think that Manwe in particular is going to be really resistant to classifying Melkor in the category of enemy. Um, he wants to believe, you know, he, 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 it's, and, and, and it's even more than Luke thinking like, there is yet good in you. You know, I, I feel that there is good in you, Father, right? It's, it's, it's not just that. It's that he, he doesn't want, there is evidence now, There is evidence available that Melkor is, you know, that he was involved uh, or at least supporting the destruction of the lamps. uh, That he is actually working against Manwe and trying to create division among the Valar. Um, There is evidence that that is true. That that's what's really going on in Melkor's mind. Um, It's not that I think that Manwe should be clueless about that. He should see that and yet resist that not want to conclude, okay, so Melkor's evil now and he's my enemy um, Manway's not going to want to say that he's not going to want to do that um, he is going to believe that Melkor can um, not even just be redeemed, but that he's not gone over all the way yet, he's going to give him every possible chance that he can um, to, you know, he's going to give Melkor every chance to repent and, and you know do the right thing um and this and this of course in Tolkien is a is a virtue. Yes, exactly. It is Far a virtue. Apart from being
0: foolishness, this is like absolutely the right thing to do. And in some sense the more foolish it is, the more right it is.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um and you can see this in the Lord of the Rings, right? You know, when uh, um we should not rely on great uh, remember the conversation about despair, right? Um, in uh, in the Council of Elrond, you know that this that you know taking the Ring to Mordor seems the policy of of, uh, of 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 folly or despair. And Gandalf says, "Let folly be our cloak." But it's more than just a cloak. It's not like, "Hey, let's pretend we're foolish," right? There's an embracing of foolishness, right? Yes, yeah, so let's let's uh, you know. He even says, like, you know, let's not rely on great wisdom. Um... Let's not do what seems and and you know and this came up uh, we talked when I did the mythgard Academy Two Towers class, we talked about this a lot with Aragorn's decision, right The decision to turn away, not pursue Frodo, but instead chase down Merry and Pippin's captors from a purely objective you know uh ends oriented decision making process that was a stupid decision. that was foolish, right I mean, okay, yeah, Merry and Pippin, they're your friends and stuff, but look. If if Frodo fails because he doesn't have guidance, the entire world is going to be destroyed, right? I mean, I like Merry and Pippin too, but come on, like you've got to leave Merry and Pippin to the. I mean, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, right? I mean, for every, you know, like wisdom would suggest, following Frodo is obviously the most shrewd thing for him to do if he wants to maximize the chances that the good guys win. Instead, he turns away. and taking the fact that, uh, you know, leaving Merry and Pippin to die in the hands of the orcs would clearly be a wrong thing to do. He has the power to help them, um, leaving them to die. He can't leave them to die. Morally, he can't leave them to die. And he take Aragorn takes this as an indication that it's therefore the right thing to do. Therefore, he should... Like, this is his sign that he's not supposed to follow Frodo now, Right? Um, and again, this at many points. There's this. I'm gonna. I'm not going to think about what is the wisest, shrewdest thing. Instead, I'm going to follow what is right, even when it looks like it's the wrong thing, even when it looks like it's a foolish thing to do. And that's what you know. It, that's what leads you to the right path. Um, so yeah, I, I do think that man weighs foolishness, both here and later at the, you know, at the unchaining of Melkor, we'll, we will, we'll have an opportunity to show this again. And basically it's kind of that that I'm wanting to set up here in part. I want to set up Manway's attitude to show it's not that he's stupid. It's not that he's foolish in the sense of he doesn't think of these things or, 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 or ask, acts rationally without thinking. It's that he thinks and considers and yet chooses to show pity Chooses to show mercy, chooses to give the benefit of the doubt, and to follow hope. Um, to follow hope instead of wisdom, basically, is what I think we can show Manway doing here. Um, and it's my desire to, to do that and to show that. that. That to me outweighs any desire to sort of preserve Manway's uh, uh, sort of uh, prestige. Um, in, in fact, if anything, I think that this is where we show his real leadership it's it's in acting like this that manway shows why he is the king i mean this is this is the most kingly thing that he can do is to act humble in this way I, again it's what he it's what morgoth doesn't get right morgoth doesn't get the the connection between humility and leadership um he is he sees leadership as something that he can arrogantly claim because he deserves it right um, but that's not what Manway shows, and so he, uh, here again, I think we have the opportunity uh to sort of show a pretty prominent tolkienian theme um you know of servant leadership and 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 sort of stewardly leadership instead of you know the arrogant seizing of power um, so that's why I especially want to have a spotlight on Manway here and to show that contrast between manway and and Milkor. I like it. Um, third point that I wanted to hit on, um, <clears throat> is, um, um, oh, so by, by the way the I still think, and I, I sort of increasingly think that the leader of the resistance, the, uh, the, the, the leader of the anti-Melkor, um, voice in, uh, in, in, in Valinor should, should totally be Olmo I mean, I think that's, that's absolutely his his role where he's just, he's not having anything. And, and it's in a sense, perhaps it makes him lesser than Manway. Like his, Manway's f- grace and forgiveness and humility, um, make him a better king, a more fit king than Olmo would be. But yet Olmo, Olmo doesn't forget. <laughs> right. And he doesn't, he does not give Morgoth the benefit of the doubt. And he's Right. And it's one of the reasons why we see him acting more actively, uh, you know, later on, um, you know, with the whole two-hour business and everything. Um, but uh, but anyway, yeah. Um, I think that uh, of the Valar, there should be relatively few who are actively duped at this point. Um, you know, uh, it, I, I would say that the... Uh, um, At this stage, you know, episode 8 and episode 9, the major. There should be. There should probably be one or two, like, pro Melko supporters still. People who really believe that he's a good guy and being misunderstood. There should be, like, Manway and Varda, presumably, agreeing with him um, that he is, uh, you know going down the wrong road but hasn't necessarily gotten there yet and they're willing to be patient and hoping to bring him back um you know to uh, to still correct him and 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 embrace him and then there'll be some who are just like done with him um and ready basically to declare him as enemy um Olmo being the head in that camp um Tolkas, I think coming over relatively quickly to that camp um who do you think should be And by pro-Melko, I don't mean people who are, like, already themselves turned to evil and and his secret supporters in Valinor. I mean people who are just, like, genuinely taken in. Who will be shocked and come around and fight with the Valar later on. Um, but huh. for whom the full revelation of his actual evil is going to be shocking. Manwe won't be shocked. He'll be saddened, but he won't be shocked. Um but I would think that someone among the Valar should be a voice who actually really buys what Melkor is selling and genuinely doesn't believe it.
0: Probably not Tolkis. Or not maybe Tolkis. Yeah, maybe it this could would be.
1: explain his, uh,
0: his, his, his later
1: sort of rage. <laughs> right. And uh, he's uh, of no avail as a counselor. Uh, so the idea that he'd yeah. be completely in the wrong makes a certain amount of sense. Um. <laughs> Uh. I don't – you know, there, I feel
0: like there might be a temptation to make Nienna one of those, but I don't I don't like that idea because no. I, I don't like – that that just that, – that's uh, – there's too much chance of people misinterpreting her character in the same way that, that um, they might misinterpret Manway, of looking and saying like, aha, see, pity means foolishness. Exactly. So exactly. I would de- – like Nienna, I put firmly on the not fooled
1: camp. More along the yes, lines of Manway of Manway yeah, yeah, I would put Nina along with with Manway. Um, yeah Tolkas that is interesting. I mean of course it, um, I mean it's almost too easy, but we should probably shouldn't resist it for that reason. Uh, I mean we do want to show Tokas being not you know not the sharpest tool in the shed um, mm-hmm. and that that would give us a good opportunity to do that. Um, we could throw in, you know, one or two of the more minor um, Valar, like Lorien, I'm thinking, for instance. Um, and Lorien could be basically thinking the best of Melkor, most because he you know, we could put Lorien in, in, like, kind of a state of almost of denial, right? Again, his, Lorien's whole thing, right, he's all, like, peace and healing, right? So we could we could have him kind of be in a place where he's just sort of wanting to, you know, almost wanting to deny the, just deny the direction that things are going. Um, but, uh, you know, he's not going evil, things aren't falling apart, everything's okay, everything's calm and peaceful, Um but, uh, but yeah, yeah, Corita said, you no, know, I agree. That is what's so appealing about the Tolkis idea is that then when Tolkis does see, this is why we see then Tolkis at the forefront of the, of the battle and for him to be the one who first, who is the most staunchly defending Melkor, um, in discussions in Valinor and then to have him, uh. then have him be the one who, you know, grapples Melkor and throws him on his face and chains him up, um, is then also sort of, uh, sort of, sort of fitting. Um, Mm -hmm. that, that certainly seems to work. Um, yeah, okay. I like that. Well, one last thing we, we, we do need to get on to talking about today's episode. Um, one last thing I wanted to address that was raised, and it's a sort of a simpler framework question. Um, Michael Dennis was at, was saying, uh, you know, why why 13 episodes? Um, why should we strain ourselves to fill an arbitrary number of time slots, uh, you know, as if they were allotted to us uh, by the network? And it's true that, you know, of course, from the beginning, I've been saying we're going to have no restrictions and everything. But I think there's a difference between having no artificial external restrictions and having no structure at all. I mean, I think we have to have a structure, and I actually think that it's a really good and uh, a really. I think that it is it is it is bad for creativity to have no structure at all. I mean, I'm kind of reminded of, uh, um, of the. Uh, that comment that i really like so much that robert frost said about modern poetry when he said that writing writing poetry without meter is like playing tennis without a net um you know you can say that being freed from uh metrical conventions uh you know gives you un, un you know untrammeled freedom of creativity um but having you know how ha- you could but that would be like saying tennis would be more fun if you had no net and no uh, you know, ba- no boundary markers, just two people <laughs> with rackets and a ball beating it at each other. Like, no, that actually wouldn't be more fun. You know? <laughs> the, 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 the I mean, it's probably a different
2: game. It would be a different game, actually, <laughs> but, a different but, game.
1: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah exactly. Having Having some rules... Uh, and saying that we need to we need to fit within those rules I think really is gonna help I know it has really helped me in sort of thinking not I mean it's true that it could become a, a bad thing if we find ourselves saying all right we got to somehow find ways to drum up material to fill these episodes you know if we really don't have anything and but you <laughs> like know that's gonna happen <laughs> yeah exactly I, I, I don't see that as being our problem um, but rather you know the other way around of course is also good too to say you know we we need this to if we if we adopt this structure if we adopt a 13-week season it prompts us to think in these uh you know in in i think really useful terms we've got to think about the arc you know how how are we going to where are we going to have these seasons falling and how are we going to do the how are we going to shape these stories having this external framework that helps us to uh, that sort of prods yeah. us to shape it in certain ways. I think is very, very useful. So, yeah.
2: and well, you know, well, so there's, you know, there's two things about that. I mean, one is if you don't have the seasons, it becomes basically a soap opera. You know, just on right. and on and on and on. <laughs> the other thing is, you know, even in this, even in the world we're creating, you know, even though this is a fantasy thing, I mean, I think from a like a marketing and PR standpoint, you do want to have off times. Right. You, know, you do want to have like you want to get the anticipation built up for the next season, kind of thing. Right. So even. I mean, I agree. I mean, I think as far as the story arc and all that stuff, I'm, I'm with you. But also there's those practical considerations too. And, I mean, you know, 13 season, 15 season, 17 season, I mean, we basically kind of just went with the model that we're familiar with. I mean, just, we, uh, I
1: mean it was kind of we just kind of agreed yeah. on it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, well, and plus, plus um, uh, following up on that point, uh, uh, there's a difference between the sort of the useful – the useful the useful constraints that, that provide structure, as you guys just said, and and the constraints that are just sort of you know oh you can't do it this way because the you know it's not testing with our core demographic blah 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 <laughs> that really interfere in the creative process. Yeah. The nice the nice thing about having some realistic constraints is that it it make and it, I think it makes this more fun a more fun exercise because then you can actually imagine seeing this on TV. If we just say yes. You know, we can just yeah. do however many episodes we want each season and stuff. It, it, like, that in itself just makes this slightly more unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the sense that we know, we know if you were ever to actually make an adaptation, one of the first things you'd have to do is go back and redo everything because you need 13 episodes per season or whatever it is. So. Right, 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 right. Or less. Jeez, I can't yeah. believe some of the shows. I mean, I, <laughs> s- I suppose... I suppose if this was on the BBC, then they they tend to be a little more. They kind of tend to do more variable episode seasons, but they still have round oh numbers. They'd in. have three episodes in the season, like Sherlock, <laughs> sure Endeavor, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, but then you, you know get one, funny? one one, one just, episode every four years which right. would be also Right,
2: right. Here's the <laughs> other. The other thing, just as a little side footnote, I I I always have the TV on when I work. I don't know why that is. It's I think it's from back in my days as a school. Student, you know, I always had something in the background. Anyway, so I ha- I've been running like the old, like 1950s uh, Perry Mason episodes. <laughs> they had like 27 episodes in a season.
1: Yeah. Can yeah. you imagine? Oh my gosh. Anyway, I, that's just that a side awesome.
2: thing. So we're kind but of going with those, kind of today. I mean, and those
0: people made money. a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: true. Anyway, so yeah, and it's something I, as I recall, it's something that we three just kind of agreed upon before we started. The, you know the yeah, show I mean, yeah sort of arrived at let's do 13 seasons so
0: yeah i don't yeah. i don't see i feel like it's a, i don't see this is actually causing any real problems
1: no i like i said in fact it, it's really been i have found it very helpful um you know really helping me to kind of focus yeah. ideas and, and clarify oh things. my
2: gosh can you imagine if we didn't have any constraints oh my god i mean We'd just go. We'd still be back, you know, with the making of Arda. I
1: mean, <laughs> yeah. So, so, okay. Now let's finish hashing out the Ino delay here, people. We we That's really right. got to sort <laughs> this out. Episode twenty. <laughs> Episode twenty. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Going to need at least two seasons.
1: <laughs> yeah. Exactly, exactly. All right, well, let us transition towards today. Quick, let's do uh, our announcements. Of course, the big announcement this week is we have uh, our spring classes uh, uh, starting up. Uh, Our our spring Signum classes um, begin on Monday, uh, and we have uh, three literature classes and a language class. Uh, Really cool slate of classes this term. We've got... um, uh, we've got uh, Doug Anderson's uh, The Inklings in Science Fiction class, where you'll get a chance to look at Lewis and Tolkien's uh, uh, relationship with the whole science fiction world, and to be looking at uh, you know the 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 center of the 20th century science fiction stuff uh, through the through the the lens of the Inklings. It's a, so a wonderful kind of meeting of worlds, uh, which is so rarely discussed. I think it, it, it's going to be absolutely fantastic, and you know if you've never. If you've never heard Doug Anderson talk, you know you 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 just have this incredible treat of being uh, uh being given this amazing wealth of uh, of of storehouse of information that Doug Anderson is. It's amazing. Um, so. Uh, so that's one class we have the invented languages class where uh, people are finally going to get a chance uh, as they've been asking for for a long time uh, to study Tolkien's elvish languages but it's going to be much more that you'll get to do that you'll get to study elvish languages with Carl Hostetter, one of the one of the leading experts in the world on on, on Tolkien's elvish languages um, you know the, the 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 one of the primary editors of Tolkien's linguistic papers basically Christopher Tolkien has handed over those uh, to uh, to Karl and and uh, and others in the Elvish Linguistic Fellowship, um, which of course you'll notice forms the acronym ELF, uh, not coincidentally. Um, but anyway, uh, th- th- those people are great. Carl is is uh, is absolutely fantastic uh, with Quenya and Sindarin. But again, you're not just going to get a chance to learn uh, and study Tolkien's Elvish languages, but really begin to see the evolution of Tolkien's languages and how. Tolkien's own language invention changed over time and how that reflected and informed his own storytelling development over time. If you really want to kind of understand what made Tolkien tick as a storyteller, um, this is, you know, you really do need to understand his languages. And I know I it's one of my own weaknesses. I don't really do his languages. Um, and I know that it really hampers my own, you know, my full understanding of sort of how these stories grew in Tolkien's mind, um, so, uh, so it's a wonderful opportunity with uh, with Andrew Higgins and Dimitri Femi, who are uh, co-editing the uh, the new Tolkien book that's coming out next year, the the new edition of uh, of his essay "A Secret Vice," where he talks about his language invention. So, uh, uh, so anyway, that's going to be a really great class. And then I'm doing my modern fantasy class as we look at sort of themes and ideas. You know, we talk about we start the semester talking about Tolkien's ideas about fantasy and why fantasy is important and what fantasy does in on fairy stories. And then we go and we look at sort of what has been going on in fantasy since then. We 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 do a sort of a selection six different fantasy uh, you know modern fantasy books. We're doing uh, thinking about different kind of 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 meanings and. concepts Concepts of of what fantasy is and how fantasy works and what the point of fantasy is, sort of seeing how that uh, is being approached by very different authors uh, in the last thirty to forty years. Um, so, so that's my class that I'm doing, and we're offering our our elementary latin one class is our language class for this term so uh really really fun exciting semester at signum and mythgard this term so i hope you'll look into those if you go to mythgard.org uh and click on current classes you'll be able to see all of the uh uh, you'll be able to see all the stuff. Classes don't start until next week, so there's still time to get in before uh, before things start up. So that's that's our, our first and main announcement. The second one is that, uh, no, it's Friday. Day before yesterday, I was going to say yesterday, um, I started uh, the new Mythgard Academy uh, seminar this term, um, this year. We're doing The Shaping of Middle-earth, so if you're wanting to uh, continue following our History of Middle-earth series that the electorate has been uh, insisting on over the last uh, year and a half, it's been really cool. We've done The Book of Lost Tales, both volumes. We did The Lays of Beleriand, and now we're doing the uh shaping of middle earth um so we we began didn't quite finish discussion of uh the sketch of the mythology the overview plot summary of of his whole mythology that tolkien wrote um, back in 1926 um, and then we're going to go on from there to the 1930 quenta really the beginning of the of the silmarillion in its eventual form um so anyway i hope you that's that's wednesday nights at uh at nine thirty so we 'll be uh, we 'll be plowing on with the shaping of middle earth um, star uh, continuing next wednesday so and those are our announcements for today so let 's get to episode nine so the the main thing with episode nine we were talking last time about Getting into the period of time where basically things are sort of falling apart um, when we're getting the rebellions and it, it, it's sort of looking like things might dissolve into uh, into complete chaos here uh, as things move forward. Um, the, the three things, three storylines that we were focused on and which I asked you guys to think about um, before this episode was the three subplots of, of the defection of Sauron, the rebellion of Ase, and the uh, the error of Aule in the making of the dwarves. And uh, so what order should we do those in, and how should we be connecting those things together? Um, lots of really good discussion on this on the on the discussion boards. What do you guys think? Dave and Trish, what are your thoughts about... Uh, my, my, I'll, just, I'll just say quickly, my own thought is that we should save Aule until last there. Um... Because I'm, I'm just kind of thinking. Imp- for two, I have two reasons for that. One, just for uh, anticipation of the children. That is, as we're getting closer and closer to the awakening of the elves, having um, having Aule be further on down the road, and having the 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 making of the dwarves, and therefore raising the issue of the Valar waiting for the children and their impatience for the children. I think having that closer to the awakening of the elves is probably a good thing, so that we're. Prompting our audience to be thinking about the coming of the children, um, whereas if we have that happen here, say in episode nine, then and they, you know, the the waking, the the actual awakening of the children doesn't happen until you know the very end of the season. That's a long time to sort of, you know, they get a chance to kind of forget about that theme a little bit more. So I I would save Aule to the End for that reason, but also for dramatic impact, I I would think, as well. If we have the Rebellion of Ase and the defection of Sauron happening, then if we set up Aule's, um, you know, the sort of the sin of Aule to look like he might be going wrong too that could really sort of achieve a, a, a kind of crisis, right? I mean, like if one of the greatest of the Valar himself is also, you know, now, so now here, you know, so things are already bad enough with, with Melkor now and, 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 and lots of chaos has been going on and now Aule is going off the rails. I mean, that, that kind of looks like it's sort of the, fi- you know, potentially the final disaster. Um, so I think for dramatic impact, I would want to have him last too. Um, what do you guys think about that?
2: Um, I, I I agree with you in terms of well one of the reasons I agree not just for the dramatic reason and I do see the point of having it be closer to the time of the Awakening Name of the Elves but also we have so much you know that we want to mm-hmm. you know there's there's a lot of stories to cover in this episode and I honestly think Owlay and there's also the aftermath which is the creation of the Ents you know and Yavanna's reaction kind of thing I mean I, I, I want to make sure that gets some play yes and if we just kind of put it in here you know I mean it I think that whole thing deserves an episode all by itself because there's enough that goes on Yes. Um, that I think is and, and I think for this episode you know we have Ase and Myron slash Sauron and you know Manway talking to democ- him I mean there's a lot already going on so I think for that for and plus we do have the option if we want to that Sauron could actually play a part in you know in like tempting Ale to do what he does Right and, and we right. already know that he's fallen but he's still still sort of part of Ale's posse you know so if we set up Sauron's fall first um and then do Alley I I agree with you I think if we did it either in episode 11 or 12 you know I think it would make sense from from the connection between the dwarves and the awakening of the elves so I'm with you
1: yeah it's you're certainly right I would want to transition straight from Alley and the dwarves into Yovana and the ants um so that's another good reason to have it at the end, so that we don't have to be like, oh, and um, also, P.S. I'll say rebels, <laughs> yes. right? You know, I, that that would seem to flow into the sort of the end sequence of the season more, right, More fluidly. Right. Dave, what are your thoughts about? What do you that?
0: think, Dave? Are you with her again? Uh, I think I think in concept, I'm I'm with. I think I think probably probably what I want to do is is um. Discuss a little bit the details of what each of these stories is going to be, and when sort of what we're hoping to achieve. But in general, I agree. I, I think it'll be dramatic if we do if we show. I so so okay. Would you say that of of these three stories? So clearly, Sauron, in the big picture of things, is the most serious transgressor here, but not within the time not within the immediate time frame we're looking yes. at. Like, yes, I imagine. S- Sauron's episode is not going to be a, like a, um, you know, like an Anakin Skywalker second half of the episode goes completely inexplicably from good guy to bad guy. Right. Yes, exactly.
1: I've been evil for five minutes and I'm now going to go murder a whole bunch of children. Or some children, yeah. Yes, yes, exactly.
0: imagine, Imagine. Sauron, it's going to be sort of showing, just showing, like the seeds of some of some right. uh, of an eventual fall, or the beginning of a slow fall, or something. I'll Ase, say, I'll say, um, will be sort of uh, like a—he'll look like sort of a, a, a petulant teenager rebelling. But so I, so I think, I think that of the three, the most serious transgression is in fact Aule, even though he's not. Not evil like um, yes, yes. Um, uh, Sauron and he's not rebelling against all the others openly like ahsse nonetheless, um, I feel like it's the most serious transgression. so from that standpoint, I think it will look I think it'll I think it will be the most uh, the most dramatic to put third and especially if as you guys say, um, we've already set up two pretty serious rebellions. Um, and, and including Sauron, who, who the viewers will most viewers will know he went evil. It, it could make it look really interesting if people are like, wow, Aule, you know, I thought he was a good guy. Right. So I, I, I generally agree.
1: Right. Um. Yeah, I think I do think that you know you make some you make some really good points there. Um. Thinking about because uh, you're right, Ase is the noisiest. Right. His 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 rebellion is the noisiest. Aule's is the most important. But you're right that Sauron's is ultimately the most the, has the biggest <laughs> impact, right? Yep. Um, you know it's the quiet guys you got to be careful <laughs> about. Um, yeah, and, and yeah. I, 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 um, I think that uh, um, you know I, Marie Prosser is emphasizing that she really wants Sauron's fall to be gradual. Totally agree. Um, he can't go all Anakin Skywalker. Um, uh, but um at the same time I'm tempted I'm tempted as I've said before I'm tempted to delay Sauron not necessarily to delay his coming over to Melkor entirely but I'm tempted to have his fall almost be a fall in secret um, mm-hmm. uh, that is to actually have Sauron be one who, who stays with Aule and lives in Valinor as a double agent for a while even till the Unchained yeah, Unchaining. yeah. Um, yeah, I like can, that beyond
2: a lot. beyond this season even perhaps yes, right yes yeah yeah totally yes, beyond this yeah. season even have yeah.
1: him be, you know even to the point you know and how how we would handle Sauron in the in the in the final episode in the actual confrontation I'm not sure um, you know we'd have we, we can talk about that later like that would he actually um, you know would he fight on the side of the Valar but and be like you know sort of sandbagging. Uh, and helping uh, Melkor in in, uh, in in secret, or would he be in disguise? You know, sort of unrecognised, but fighting on Melkor's side. Um, I don't know. We'd have to decide that later on. But um, but I, I I kind of like that idea, especially since we know Sauron is not going to be discovered. So having Sauron ruling at Angband, as we, you know, we talked about Angband in Utumno last time, and having Utumno be the you know sort of the the palace of cold and arrogant beauty um that uh, Melkor makes for himself and that's the one that gets pretty much destroyed that's the one that gets attacked and destroyed and Angband be the fortress of of strength which he keeps concealed and we were talking about you know sort of Sauron being the captain uh, uh there at Angband but again he doesn't have to be openly the um he 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 doesn't have to be openly the the uh the captain there he doesn't have to be mm-hmm. publicly proclaimed um so, um, so yes, definitely gradual. And Dave, I think your your suggestion is a really good one. There, there are kind of there are two things that we have to work out here, right? First, we have to work out what are the actual plot lines for each of these characters, right? For Aule and Ase and and Sauron, and then we have to think about how are we going to present them and break them down into episodes. And I, I I think that you're right that we should just think about them on their own first, and then decide right. breaking them down into episodes. Right. Even if right. that means we don't finish that whole thing today, because basically one thing that I'm definitely thinking, we want at least a, a two a two episode sequence here. I don't think we're I don't think episode nine is a neat package. I think that nine and ten. I mean, yeah, the, I agree. The, the vague outline I have in my head is that like episode nine and ten are are like a you know a much more fluid like to be continued kind of two episode sequence. Which mm-hmm. doesn't come to a resolution because nice. it does the rebellions and and uh, of of more of more than one of them at a time probably.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. On a side note, by
2: the way, Brian Yoder, I don't want to lose this. Um, he says our view our view of Alay in the future will also be impacted by this. And when the dwarves come about, they should seem to be troublesome because of Alay's actions. Yes, yes, it'd be a reflection of that.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, i I, I don't want to even I don't want to lose the fact that dwarves are not troublesome (laughs) they're troublesome they're not just they're not just good guys you know it's uh, through the hobbit and the lord of the rings we as readers become emotionally attached to a bunch of dwarves and i think that really colors our i mean if you if you come to tolkien's works through the silmarillion which pretty much nobody except Tolkien did, but but if you were uh, to have done that, then, you know, Thorin and company and Gimli would seem like exceptions. And remember, that's how they're treated by everybody, right? You know, everyone is kind of surprised to find that Gimli's as good a guy as he is. And it's kind of easy to read that in The Lord of the Rings as mere bigotry, right? Oh, well, look at all these assumptions that people make about dwarves, except they're kind of true actually um, and dwarves are not really upstanding people universally, so yeah I mean, they're troublesome, absolutely um, but um but yeah, yeah, Maria suggesting we, it doesn't have to be just a two-parter. Having a whole sort of rebellion arc in nine, ten, and eleven, and maybe even twelve. Maria, yeah, exactly. That's kind of what I'm thinking. That we're gonna we're gonna divide these in this way. That this chunk of the season is really, I, I think, is going to be more fluid, um, as far as that's concerned. Building up to what I think does need to be, you know, the sort of climactic standalone episode in episode thirteen. Um, and I'm thinking, in my mind, even twelve uh, might possibly be. No, but but at the least nine and ten and probably eleven um, are going to be are going to be sort of working together. So if we don't specify the actual sequencing and the structure of these episodes until next time, I'm not going to worry about that. Um, let's think about the plot lines themselves and make sure we know where each of them are going to be going, and then we will see more clearly in order to see how to fit them together and plan out um, plan out the episodes for uh, for for next time. Um, so let's talk about the let's talk about the plot lines. Um, and what's I, I want to talk first about Asse and well we've been talking about Sauron so let's 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 keep talking about Sauron. Um, how does Sauron go bad exactly? What is it about Sauron that makes him go bad? Why does he go? And what do we even mean by going bad? Because remember. One of the things we've been doing all along has been not making Melkor go completely bad. Like, he still doesn't think of himself as a bad guy. He st- he is, you know, it will be... It's increasingly apparent to some of the Valor, as it should be increasingly apparent to the viewers, that he is being guided by his pride and his arrogance, um, and that this is really coloring what seemed to be his good intentions his own sense of, his own increasing, you know, his his shift towards, um, his shift away from, I should be the leader because I am the best and smartest and I want to do what is best for everyone so they should follow what I have to say, can be shifting more and more to sort of resentfulness and like, why aren't those froward idiots over there in Valinor obeying me more? Um, why am I being slighted so much? And And, 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 and that kind of Uh, The way that that's shifting just towards malice on his part, but still, I don't want Melkor to be, you know, a cackling maniacal villain yet either. Um, And so, I think we need to keep that in mind. So, when we talk about things, um, uh, when we talk about things, uh, people going bad, it's not just as simple. um, It's it's not as simple as just. I mean, and you know, thinking, you know, Dave, you were talking about Anakin Skywalker this to me is one of the things that was so stupid about the way that they did that in revenge of the Sith. Um, is that that, you know, like the, the whole, the way in which they tried to make it not into, um, you know, do what you believe to be the right thing for wrong reasons. Instead, it was just like embrace evil because evil is powerful. And Anakin's like, okay, I will be evil. Um, so I guess I have to go murder children now in order to qualify as evil and make myself sufficiently powerful. I mean it was so unconvincing and uh and sort of uh, I don't know, just sort of just sort of silly. So so what is the what is what is Sauron's fault? Tell me more about his his mindset as we're as we're moving into this.
2: Wasn't it wasn't it I can't remember if it was the professor or Gandalf who says this, but they said that <laughs> the one redeeming thing about Sauron was yes. that he stayed true to the Master. Yes, yes. So we want to get, somehow there has to be that element in there, you know, that the, that the, the, the bonding between those two have got to be really strong, right? Yes. Um, I mean, my impression is, sorry for the chorus in the background here. It's okay. Um, uh, is that the same thing, I would think that the same sorts of motivations would attract Sauron that attracted Melkor. Um, Ultimately domination, but sort of having things his own way sort of Mm -hmm. thing, or, 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 you know, maybe he's, you know, chafing under constraints, you know, he's not allowed to do this or that, or I don't know, you know, maybe there's got to be some kind of dissatisfaction to start with that would make him open to seduction by Melkor.
1: Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, it is in. In I think I'm pretty sure it's in the Valaquenta that uh, Tolkien says that he was only less evil than Melkor in that for long he served another. Right. Um, right. But I, okay. I, I I do like the idea of kind of building on that concept. Um, uh, Trisha, as you were speaking, Carita had uh, had just uh, said in her comment um, that uh, Sauron should go bad at least in part due to misplaced or undeserved right. loyalty. Um, and I, I think that that's interesting. I I, I do like that idea. Um, that part of what he could have, um, you know, uh, Brian Federini suggests that his faith in Manway is shaken, and he's unhappy that Owley supports Manway. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, part of this could be simply um, uh, part of this uh, could could simply be the fact that um, he respects more what. What Melkor is—I mean, of course, it's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's his own arrogance, you know, his own desire. Like basically, what the way that Melkor is doing things appeals to him. He likes Otumno right. better than better than right. Valinor. Um, but uh, and so we can see that this is in part like what is you know what is already falling in him. But he could be disgusted at Manwë's humility basically, you know... You know See it as a sign of weakness. Exactly. Like, here's, you know, yeah. so, you know, here's Melkor, who has basically made an... Op, you know, he's essentially resisted the... He doesn't have to be evil, or they don't have to view him as an enemy, but there's no question that he's kind of set himself up in an opposite camp, right? Everyone else right. has gone off to Valinor, and he's... And Melkor has said, I'm, I'm going instead, I'm going to set up a Tumno so we've got a Tumno and Valmar as." as the sort of, uh, you know, the different camps. And, you know, we talked about that before with doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and all that kind of thing. We can have, you know, um, Sauron looking at that, you know, Myron, I should say, looking at that uh, and, and agreeing with Melkor, seeing that, like, here, you know, here, on the one hand here, Melkor is, is sort of standing up on his own against um, Manway. He, Sauron, could admire that. Right, admire the courage of, of, of Melkor to not go along with Manway and the others. Um, and here is, you know, uh, uh, so he, he could see this as sort of uh, you know bold and and um, and and noble what Melkor is doing. Um, and 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 then you have here you have Manway coming to him with hat in hand, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know,
2: yeah. I, I just I said something. Um and then i questioned myself as soon as i said it which is um, talking about seduction of sauron yes. i don't necessarily know that that is the right i mean that's kind of i just realized it's like well why am i assuming it would be Melkor seducing sauron it could be like you said that sauron actually you know admires and comes to you know be devoted to melkor on his own without morcor necessarily having any you know any particular designs on him in particular right um, right so the Sauron self reveals himself as the lieutenant rather than Melkor saying picking him out and saying I'm going to you know I'm going to corrupt that guy.
1: Exactly. Well because it's again remember we don't have Melkor himself thinking of himself as a bad guy. Right? So the whole right, idea of, right. of you know we don't want him to be like come over to the dark side cuz Melkor doesn't think he's on the dark side, right? He right. thinks he's right and everybody else is wrong. Um, so uh so that yeah. would be
2: the thing. Sauron agrees with Melkor. Sauron Melkor's agrees with right.
1: Melkor, exactly. Yeah. Thinks that he's right and is basically, say, could even see himself as, you know, sort of nobly helping, like, what would seem to be the underdog. Like, here's the guy, you know, here, yeah. being persecuted by the rest of the Valor, right? The one guy who's standing up to uh, to 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 the rest of them. Um, and then has
2: the right idea about how things should be.
1: Has the right idea about how things should be, and is and is strong, stronger than 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 they are. He would admire. You would think that Sauron would admire strength, right? Um, and so he would recognize. Uh, um, uh, he he right. he would recognize Melkor's strength and 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 admire that. Um, yeah, I, I like uh, Marie Prosser suggests that uh, perhaps um, he. Uh, in, his, in Sauron's own pride, in Myron's own pride, he could think that he could succeed in bringing uh, Melkor back where Manway has failed. Um, possibly, but again, I don't think he's going to disagree with Melkor. I, I think we have him, um, again, and, and to me it's one of the things that sort of separates Sauron from most or even all, with the possible exception of the Balrogs, the rest, especially the way that we've handled the Balrogs, um, the rest of, of Melkor's uh, 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 supporters, and, and is that basically Melkor is into dominating the wills of others. I mean, that's what we see in the Silmarillion. Is that his servants are his slaves, and he dominates their wills. Um, with Sauron, that seems to be l- sort of less the case. He's much more. Uh, again, that's that's what I hear in that. Um, in that comment by Tolkien that says he was only less evil in that for a while he served another. If he had been, and I I don't take that as sort of excusing Sauron, like he he wasn't operating under his own power, right? He was dominated by Morgoth, but rather he made the choice to subordinate himself to someone else. There was an element of humility there in his serving of Morgoth. Um, I mean it's not a major element and uh you know and he he he's still it's uh, he was still sufficiently evil um but that still is like the one good thing in his uh in his on on his ledger there um so yeah i mean i think that i think Well, that, the devotion to Melkor yeah.
2: wouldn't be selfless. I no. mean
1: it Oh no, selfless. exactly. Yeah.
2: Serving. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. Um um Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Mark Ingram says, Benedict Arnold thought of himself as a patriot, a loyal subject of the crown. Um, yes, and it's basically in that way that I would see Sauron acting. He thinks he's doing the right thing. And so if, if we do, if he is acting as an agent um, in Valinar, then I would... Um, you know, I would see. Basically, again, he thinks he's doing the right thing. He thinks that uh, he thinks that Melkor is in the right. He 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 agrees with Melkor's principles, and uh, uh, and so he believes that he's. So yeah, he doesn't see himself as 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 wicked. Um,
2: well, the other thing too is you know, in terms of you know Sauron being a subordinate of Melkor versus you know setting up on his own um, was also the fact that you know Sauron's a Maya and Melkor's a Vala. There's you know maybe a thought in there that he can better himself. <laughs> you know I'm I'm trying to go yeah. for his own personal motivations as well yes. besides the you know I think he's I think Milko's doing the right thing for for the good of everybody. I just think there has to also be some self-serving yeah motivation well, in there. As he well, he could
1: improve his own power. I mean he, exactly. in his in understanding He power. does, yeah. right? I mean, you know, yep, he he, he he he's got the chance to rule the world in the third age and right. the second age. Um yep. you know, he's um uh, rather than just being, uh, you know, one of Ale's flunkies. Um, I always wondered if he was
2: still devoted to Melkor during the Second and Third Age, but that's something for another time.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, you could read the Numenorian story that way, right, when he turns, yeah. uh, because he doesn't turn the Numenorians to the worship of himself, it's to the worship of, right. of Melkor. Right. Um, so you could see him as, okay, so see like he's still trying to help Melkor, to so he's still like at least he's still kind of holding a torch for Melkor, right, uh, in the third age, <laughs> or in the second age, but I'm not I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm, I totally buy that actually, but you're right. That's yeah, me uh, Let's say that we'll we'll come back and we'll talk about that in 2028. Um, yes, uh, yes. The... write that down, somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Please make a note to so we should return to that in 12 years or so. Um, okay. <laughs> anyway, um, so. My question then is: If we see Sauron's fall in this way—that is, we see his fall not being tempted by Melkor, but essentially in parallel with Melkor—it's um, his sympathy with Melkor um, that leads him in the way that he does. What's the actual process, though? Do how do we show him interacting with Melkor? I mean, that is, I, I'm trying to think in practical terms. Like, what scenes do we give him? Do we give Myron? Um, and uh, and are there are there you know there there, there are going to need to be some kind of turning points that we give him uh, in order to really communicate to the audience what's happening.
2: Well, you know, Miss had the um, idea of having him be par- having Manway take Aule with him when he goes to see Melkor, as Aule would be like the. L- least sort of, like, in-your-face companion <laughs> for him to take from <laughs> right, him.
1: Right, He's not going to take and, Omo, and he's not going to take Tolkos, because you never know what Tolkos exactly. is going to say. Right.
2: Right, right. So then, Ale's posse comes along, which is He's Myron not going to
1: take Varda, because like, romantic yeah. awkwardness, who needs oh, yeah. that, right? Doesn't so, want to yeah. even yeah. take
2: that, yeah, right, exactly. So he <laughs> takes Ale, and Ale's posse comes along, which is Myron and Kurumo, right? Kurumo, if I got Kurumo, that Kurumo,
1: right. yeah, yeah. Um,
2: so it could be that we don't necessarily have to see Melkor and So Sa- Sauron interacting prior to this, although I guess we did do that during the lamp period, period did we? Um, but this could be did we? if we did do it during the lamp. Did we do that during we the lamp? We talked about it.
1: We talked about we it.
2: We talked about it. it. But it's not necessary.
1: It's, it's not, not necessary. necessary so this could
2: yeah. really be the first We're time they interact. Is I'm really when he comes to a tumno.
0: You guys are you guys are really sort of bringing me around to this idea of like maybe like maybe Sauron starts sort of. Start of kind of doing his own thing and sort of aiding Melkor indirectly, maybe even maybe even without Melkor really knowing it, or at least mm-hmm. without Melkor directing him. Maybe Melkor's is aware and secretly satisfied, but like I, I'm kind of liking that. I really like that idea. That would that would sort of that would emphasize a little bit, you know, Sauron's Sauron's kind of own personal uh, villainy. Right. Rainfall. Um, right. But yeah, this this makes a lot of sense, Trish, uh, just to kind of have him come along as a part of the retinue. Yeah,
2: which would be, that's when he sees a tumno, really, you know, and, he's, and he and this is when he sort of begins to think maybe Melkor's on the right track and Menway's on the wrong track, especially since he's seeing Manway humble himself, which he doesn't approve of at all. I mean, it all could happen during a, that, you know, him being part of the retinue.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that could. I... I Well, okay. I guess I I was gonna say I still really like the idea of Manway being alone, but it's okay. He can take Melkor off for a private talk. I still want I still want the two of them to be alone in the room. Uh, You know, when they when like the two of them really confront each other, but it doesn't mean that Manway has to be all alone when he comes over. Yeah,
0: yeah, Hmm. that's also a good point. That it does alter the character of that act, doesn't it? Exactly,
1: it does. Unavoidably, I I wouldn't want Manway to be like I am making a visit visit in state, accompanied by my many supporters, to confront you. That's. But would
2: he also go alone? necessarily I mean, you know, it's like. Would he also go all by himself? I mean, visit and stay would be to bring almost all the... Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah,
1: bring bring the whole posse. Um, Okay, well, here's a couple things. First of all, um, oh, by the way, there was a a question on the discussion board about, like, you know, Manway's not supposed to come back to Middle-earth that often, to which I respond, uh, how do we know?
2: How do we know? How do we know?
1: I mean, remember there was a there was a live question as to whether or not Gandalf might actually be Manway, right? So I mean, the idea the idea that that man I I actually. Right, I actually reject the idea that Manway never came back over to Middle Earth again. I, I don't think that. I don't think there's a, there's a, there's negative evidence that is we don't hear stories about him coming over. But there's a whole lot of stories we don't hear. That doesn't mean they don't exist. I mean, I, I, plus I, he
2: doesn't even have to come over embodied. He could come over not embodied.
1: Exactly. So yeah, I I don't um I don't I don't I, I, I'm not I don't feel inhibited by that anyway. But secondly, um, I I don't th- I. Don't think we need to make return to Middle earth a huge, huge deal here. Most of them are kind of distracted in Valinor and hanging out in Valinor, and that's why we, you know, so we get, you know, Orome, as we talked about last time, finding that there are these monsters roaming around. Um, uh, you know, so we have the darkness coming from Melkor, and we have the, you know, the trees and the light have, you know, the trees have just bloomed in the last, uh, uh, in the last episode. Um, but I, I, I that is, I think there can be a certain amount of toing and froing, even to, to Melkor. I don't think it has to be a like. Manwe makes a big deal about the fact that he is forming an official embassy over to visit Utumno. Like, mm-hmm. why shouldn't mm-hmm. they? Like, they're not at war. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, mm-hmm. he, he could Manwe could even encourage other people to go over and talk. And like to you Melkor. say, there
2: could have, there could be a lot of toing and froing because frankly, Melkor would want people
1: to come visit so he could show off his place yeah well exactly. he would certainly be inviting people over right i mean and because that that's what he would want he would want not to be seducing people to the dark side but he's he wants to convince people that he's right and manway's wrong yeah um I wonder,
0: uh, I wonder I wonder if you could also do something now where in concept at least as far as as manway's uh, 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 the people around manway are concerned this this initially starts to look like um uh, like a state visit and and this kind of stuff. And it's only becomes apparent late in the game, maybe even after they arrive, that Melkor has manipulated it in a way to sort of to kind of um, to you know uh, insult Manway or humble Manway, put Manway down. And, and that's when sort of you know maybe there's some moment where somebody says like well we should leave and we should refuse to accept this blah 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 and that's where Manway makes the choice to no we're going to go forward with this because um, you know like, like, we need, like we need to reach out and we need to try and reconcile yes yeah um
1: yeah I mean yeah that, that is interesting Um, maybe because it doesn't have to be on Manway's side. Thought of as a state visit, right? Um, You know, like he could see going over to talk to Melkor as no big deal, right? I mean, not necessarily a big deal, you know. So, you know, like maybe he and Aley are talking about it, and you know, talking about Melkor, and they're like, "Hey, let's go see him." Why? All right, fine. Let's let's go over and see him, and you know, some Mm -hmm. people come with him. And then when they get there, Melkor is all formal, right? And he's treating it like they're right. coming to him as supplicants. Um, he Doubtless, I mean, you've yes. got to believe yeah, that correct. Melkor has made a huge throne for himself in Utumno, right? He has this, like, really <laughs> regal, over-the-top throne room. And so they come in to see him and they're, they're kind of... It's like they're expecting to be welcomed at the door and brought into the parlor, right, and given tea. And instead, they find themselves, like, coming down this long and imposing hallway towards him, sitting up on his throne, right, with a really fancy scepter and whatever. Um, And, like, you know, so people could be uncomfortable with that to be like, uh, what the heck is going on here? Right. Um, And kind of looking out the corner of their eyes at Manway, being like... um, you know is it just me or does melkor look like he's kind of making himself king around here and aren't you supposed to be the king and how are you going to handle and right. manway doesn't rise to it you know manway doesn't be like how dare you even though some of the other people are probably saying how dare he oh sauron right. for sure myron's like what 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 are, yeah. What, are you?" yeah sauron is very aware of this right yeah. and yeah. so you know- maybe maybe sauron could be
0: the guy who takes a front at it Sauron could could be the, uh, Sauron could, Sauron could, Sauron perceives it as an insult to himself as well, and initially, you know, maybe he's not vociferous about it to Manwe, but he, he to somebody expresses a great deal of shock that Manwe goes forward, like, yes, like, this could maybe be the, the inciting moment where Sauron, you know, maybe, like, maybe we could put Sauron on sort of the initial, like, like, opposing Melkor, um, strongly, um, uh, but but not out of principle, out of pride. And then this is the moment where he looks and sees, yeah, you know, I kind of, I kind of like the way this guy does business,
1: <laughs> right? Because right. you know, it, it is actually true. Um, in order to be psychologically verisimilitudinous, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, say, I say, Thank you, thank you, thank you. My day is made. Um, if we, if if we, you know, I was saying before that, you know. Sauron is, is proud, and Morgoth is proud, but of course, um, I, I assume that nobody here is a proud or arrogant person, but you probably know proud and arrogant people, uh, and if you have ever had any experience of that, there's nothing—it's like one of the litmus tests for pride it's like, you can know that you have an an issue with pride, that you may well be a proud and arrogant person if other people's pride really pisses you off. Like, if if you are really (laughs) sensitive to how proud and arrogant other people are, I've got bad news for you. There's probably something wrong with you. Like, there's no clearer (laughs) sign of that. So, on the one hand, saying, like, to say that Sauron says to Melkor, like, hey, you're proud and arrogant, I'm proud and arrogant, let's get together and be a proud and arrogant team. Like, it doesn't work that way. That's just not how pride right. works. Um, uh. So, Dave, you're, the way that you're doing this is right. And if M- Manway is then sort of the pivotal point, right? Um, so he, that is, Sauron's first reaction is to be offended. but and, and to feel a kind of a rivalry, you know, to sort of rise to uh the, the 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 sort of the challenge, the arrogance that Melkor is showing. And then he sees Manway not rise to it, because Manway is humble, and humble people don't get bothered by pride and arrogance in other people. Again, it's one of the ways you can tell humble people. Um and uh and so but so yeah, so then his that that shift from I am offended by what Melkor is doing to I am disgusted at how Manway is reacting. Right. You know, like what a weak little sniveling worm he's being. Not to right. respond in, in, in the indignation that I have is actually something that can turn him around to be like, gosh, maybe Melkor's right and I'm wrong. Maybe I have something to gain from this. I mean, I can actually see um, his disgust at Manway being the kind of, the, the kind of uh, you know, sort of fulcrum that, that, that pivots him over that.
2: And Kurumo can be his foil in this. In other words, he can be the person that that Myron is talking to about it, and Kurumo doesn't agree. You know, or, or you know, their their peers and their companions. So there's sort of a, a level of you know, like confidence between them, and that can really be where we see Sauron's state of mind, what he's thinking in, yes. in his conversations with Kurumo. And Kurumo doesn't agree, or he doesn't necessarily have to disagree all at once. But in other words. Over time, you see them separating more and more. This is again not an original Trish idea. This is Mythloine's idea. She's white hot, that girl. <laughs> um, but I really hey. thought that was a great idea.
0: That's a pretty interesting idea. What about uh? What about what about this being not only Sauron, but also also um? Saruman and Gandalf, just like very subtly, showing maybe three different reactions to um, Ooh. to to, to oh, Melkor well, and Manway. That is hey. tempting, isn't it? <laughs> Sauron,
1: <laughs> all three of
0: them are staunch Manway supporters at the beginning, and then and then, you know, Sauron comes away saying like, man, that Sauron or that Melkor's really got it right. Like, you know, yeah. you know, like, geez, Manway, right. what a weakling. And and Kurumo is sort of confirmed in his proud support of the establishment like I like right. the idea of him being him being sort of equally proud but just in a sort of like more of a hey we, we need to do the we yes. got to follow the rules here guys sort of way and then um, but uh, um, um, you know Ganoff being the only one who actually inter- sees things properly who, who
1: appreciates um, and understands Manway's humility yeah yeah and I, I would just want to clarify we've been we've referred several times to kurumo being along kurumo of kurumo, course is the kurumo. valinor is the valinorian name of, of of saruman um yes so who was also one of the maya of Aule, so that's why we're pairing him i just want to make sure everyone's on the same page with that um because that's so that's why we have him why paired with gandalf's name with here i momentarily Aluren. forgot it. Aluren, so, yeah. Aluren, Aluren, yeah. Aluren, yes Oloran. so yeah I, I I mean and 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 having Oloran be one of the followers of manway seems seems uh, that's right as well, so we have Oloran came along with Manway and uh, Kuramo and Sauron and excuse me Myron came along with Aule. um that makes a ton of sense and and yeah, the three of them give a really fascinating potential spectrum, and I love the idea absolutely love the idea of um um of having. Saruman's character, Kuramo's character, be uh diehard, arrogant pro establishment. Yes. Right. So we can Perfect. see the seeds yeah. of how he's gonna go wrong, right? He's too arrogant, he's too stuck out, he's too inflexible, he's too but he's establishment, right? He's not, you know, because you can see the same right. thing. This is why this guy would leap. He's the first volunteer when they're like, we need somebody to go over and, you know, become the Astari and, and help the people of Middle-earth here in the Third Age. You can totally see Kuromo being like, me, I'm all about it. I am a, I'm going to go and I'm going to set things in order and I'm going to, d- yeah. it's going to be great. Um, maybe he has a, right. maybe, yeah, you could imagine him having like a, just a, like a
0: burning grudge against yes. Myron. From from whatever the yeah. very first moment he detects Myron's rebellion, just being like, "I'm going to set this guy straight."
1: Yeah. Oh, exactly. <laughs> and the way that we could, the way that we can, that we could even allude to that later on, you know, with like pal- the the like the initial Palantir conversation between Saruman and Sauron, uh, you know, oh, yeah. would be really rich this way. So yeah, exactly. Well, and Nick- you know,
2: it, it it reminds me of what. Um, Tolkien has said in his letters about what would have happened for example if Gandalf had had the ring Right. where you know he would have been doing he would have been worse actually than Sauron and he would have been doing it you know for the greater good
1: right right he would have been trying to do like he he would have been like the the omnipotent busybody basically right uh, right. trying to rule everybody for their own good whether they wanted it or not
2: and that makes me think of how Sauron at least would have started out
1: yes yes Yes, you know. exactly. Yeah, uh, Nick Palazzo, I think, is exactly right. Self-righteous is exactly, I think, the yes. way that we would depict yes. Saur- uh, or Saruman, uh, Kurumo, here. Um, so, yeah, no, that's great. I love that. I love that. Okay, so I'm, I'm one over to the Aule comes along thing, but then we can still retain the, the character. Like, we can show, like, Manway's confusion, basically. Like, his response to Melkor's sort of power play essentially you know trying to sort of assert his dominance and 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 you know being manway being maneuvered into this position where he's made to look like a sup suppli- a, a supplicant is not he's not offended he's not angry he just is kind of puzzled and uh you know like puzzled like why are you why are you doing i can, you know can we just talk you know i just came over here to to, to, to speak with you um, and so he does get Melkor to like descend from his throne and the two of them go off to talk um, leaving uh, um, leaving the three Maya there to uh, sort of talk amongst themselves while Aule is off admiring the uh, the carvings and architecture I would think Um <laughs> By the way, I agree. Somebody, I, I, forget. Somebody said this a while back, and I've lost it in the stream. Um, I like the idea of having Aule be depict Aule as a kind of irascible and not very attractive, physically attractive uh, uh, person. Um, you know, sort of a. Grumpy, untidy guy who scratches himself in public, and and uh, you know, like that. That seems to me to fit. I mean, in part, of course, it's playing on the mythic tradition, right? You know, the idea yeah, that I've always,
2: like I've always thought of him as Vulcan, exactly,
1: you know, as Vulcan type exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 that you know, basically, the, there's a reason why you know, Hephaestus and Vulcan are depicted the way they are, right? Because uh, you know, that that that's one of those you know, mannish myths which has a perception of howlay, but doesn't get everything quite right.
2: He's the guy who's crack shows, right?
1: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you have... Uh, yeah. Ali should look like a slob and really not very attractive when he's in his workshop, yeah. especially. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, p- p- people are objecting to giving Owlay plumbers crack, and they're probably right about that. <laughs> I agree. We shouldn't go quite that far, but uh, but, but the
2: spirit of it, the spirit, the sp- of it. exactly. Not the, he's
1: his actual yeah. yeah. He should be like the least fancily dressed. Uh, you know, even though you know, even though you could say, I mean, he's all about uh, you know, he's all about he's all about design and craftsmanship. He wouldn't wear shoddy stuff. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't wear rags or anything, but he just, you know, but again, his his focus is all on the, the thing made, not on glory for making it right. He wouldn't make stuff to adorn himself. That's not what he would do. Um, but, uh, anyway, uh, okay. So, so, so it's all right. That was, that was a brief distraction. Um, Okay, so where are we with Sauron? So then, so this is so we see Sauron having. So this is a turning point moment for Sauron. I'm thinking we follow this up with a, a solo visit. Myron comes over to talk to Melkor, and the two of them have a have a have a one on one. But I don't think anything. I, I don't think we need to have it be either a, a sort of a seduction slash recruitment on Melkor's side, nor a an enlistment. On on Myron's side, I think it's just kind of a meeting of the minds, a confirmation both to each other and to the viewers that these two really have a lot in common and really look at things the same way. Um, and then maybe we hold it. I, again, maybe we hold off. Maybe it's actually not until the battle comes that Sauron really makes his choice. Or even, you know, because it's all, you know... Yeah, that's true. So that, I you mean, know, he could so be a double agent, but not
2: necessarily up. officially a double agent. Right. You know, I mean, exactly. and he wouldn't necessarily even think of himself as a double agent. He would just be kind of keeping Melkor apprised. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But not necessarily have completely gone over. Or
0: something. Yeah. Just sort of, just sort of keeping up a cordial relationship.
2: But you're right, because there are no sides to choose at this point. It's really not until
1: Right, the, now, there's not... Right? I mean, even in Valinor, there are people like Tolkas, as we were suggesting before, who are still very openly pro Melkor and think he's a great guy and, 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 and fear that other people are misunderstanding him. Um, so... Oh, I
2: think you're right, Nick Palazzo. I think Gothmog would resent Sauron. I mean, he wouldn't like Myron probably from the very beginning, right? Oh, so yeah, like,
1: yeah. He wouldn't like him yeah yeah in fact i I think that we could have that as a feature of myron's solo visit um you know that he comes to visit and like basically gothmog you know meets him, and uh you know the Balrogs are really rude to him, yeah seeing him yes. as a potential rival right um yeah i mean of course the danger of this scene is i'm this solo scene as I'm imagining it is that nothing really happens i mean it could just seem kind of pointless if they just come over and sort of shoot the breeze and uh, and and nothing is actually well, accomplished.
2: Again, you know, you could do like it could be well, if it's just the two of them I was going to say you could have Gothmog present so he could be baiting Myron. I don't know. Yeah, it would it, we don't want to have it turn into like a dinner with Andre kind of thing, right?
1: Yeah, I mean it, it's. I mean, part part of what we could do is perhaps just make it short. You know, we don't have to yeah. have a really lingering scene because we're not. We wouldn't be coming to any particular climax there. We yeah. would just want to build the idea of the likeness and kind of willingness to work I'm not, together.
0: I'm not at
2: The other all, thing is Melkor could be giving Myron a tour of the place while they talk. You know, not, so there could be a
0: little action. Mm-hmm. I'm not at all convinced. That M- that Myron has to actually interact with Melkor at this point. I think all of the things that we want to accomplish could be accomplished. Like, could essentially we have a, an A story and a B story? The A story being Melkor and Manway and like the drama of that. The B story being the ongoing debate between Myron Kurumo and Kurumu, and um, Aloran. Yeah. Like, and, and that and that we we. That we we can reveal what's going on inside his mind by what he says to those guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. like his outrage at, mm-hmm. like like he and he and, he and uh, Kuruma will, will both be outraged at initially at at Melkor's treatment of Manway and the reception, um, but but you know but. But Melkor, sort of, as time goes on, expresses admiration. Maybe he's impressed by Otumno and that kind of stuff. But maybe doesn't receive any actual special treatment or attention from Melkor. Um, I can see, you know, if we're talking about there, there being back and
2: forth, you know, people be going back and forth, it wouldn't be a big deal. But what we maybe would see was Myron going to visit
0: Otumno more and more.
1: Mm-hmm. You know,
0: yeah, yeah over be. the next season.
1: Well, yeah. and here's the other thing to remember. If we're calling him Myron... Uh, most people like well, I know, yeah. are gonna have no idea who that is. I mean Which again is- so but it that's would great be a Social
2: media, Twitter will be alive with it. Because you know that Kurumo is actually going to be Sauron and Myron is Sauron. I mean, let exactly. the exactly. take care <laughs> of that part.
1: Well, I mean, in Kurumo, that's at least in, in Unfinished Tales. I mean, Myron is only in, like, the etymologies. It's really obscure. Yeah, um, true. So, true. I mean, the, we're talking, like, 99.5. I would bet you that 99.5% of Tolkien, percent of Tolkien fans don't know that Myron was Sauron's People
2: original. Even Colbert barrel no. Huh? Stephen Colbert will
1: know. Stephen Colbert will probably know, sure, but ninety nine point five <laughs> percent of Tolkien fans aren't going to know that, um, which means that, and even Tolkien fans, much less much less casual people. So I'm thinking that we actually kind of do that as a reveal in episode thirteen. Um, of who he really is. So mm-hmm. maybe we don't even it's not even obvious to the viewers that what we're seeing in Myron is a like trip to the dark side. Again, it's not we already know who Anakin Skywalker is gonna be all the way through the prequels. Yeah. And, you know True. we wouldn't know who Myron is going to be. Or you know, most people wouldn't necessarily know who Myron is going to be. And so when it's revealed that, you know, he is going to he's gonna ally himself with with Melkor and Melkor changes his name at the end and names him and names him Sauron and sets him up as the captain in Angband. That's kind of cool. Um, so, uh, anyway, yeah, there's, uh, there's, um, I I think a lot of, uh, a lot of cool dramatic potential there, but it's one of the reasons why I think we, we keep this plot in the, um, you know the, the the development of this plot kind of quiet. I mean, we don't we don't have there be a climactic I'm turning to evil moment until until the end. You know, until the lines really get drawn. Um, how about we don't have much time. We're not going to be able to finish. But I want to start talking about Asae. How about Asae? How do we see? Uh, how do we see Ase, um Go and you know. By the way, I'm still I'm still doing. We're still doing sort of fact finding. I want to take after we work out all three of these plot threads, the Sauron thread, the Ausei thread, and the Aule thread, then we can sort of figure out how to dovetail these things best together in this set of at least three episodes that we're talking about here. So we may not get, it might not be until, you know, our, um, our, our what 13th session you know, when we're, talking, when we're scheduled to talk about episode 11 that we actually map out in detail all three of those episodes um, and if we did that, that's fine with me, because again, I'm, I'm really seeing these as a unit um, but let's start talking about Ase what, what are the, sort of the key elements of the Ase story in the book is that Ase is offered basically he's offered power he's, he, is, he is Olmo's underling and he is offered the entire realm of Olmo um, if he will serve uh, Melkor. And he takes it, and, and he rebels. But his rebe- but he comes back to his allegiance, and he's primarily won back to his allegiance by Unin, by his wife. Um, what, yeah, Brian, we'll, we'll talk about Aule next time. Definitely talk about Aule next time. Um, now, Nick, I agree with you. Uh, The fact that Olmo has emerged as like the hardline anti-Melkor spokesman gives us an obvious in for talking about Ase's Rebellion, right? Um, For two reasons. Both because if Melkor considers anybody his enemy, Olmo is going to be at the top of his list, right? So the idea that Melkor would start actively plotting against Olmo makes all kinds of sense. Um, And it does give the the fact that Olmo is kind of the extremist in this sense. Um, you know, he's on one extreme end of the spectrum of the opinion in, in Valinor. It does give the opportunity for, you know, a, a gap between the way Ase looks at things and the way Olmo looks at things. And that, uh, you know, that Melkor could be kind of taking uh, advantage of that. Hmm.
0: That certainly, that certainly, yeah, that that makes sense. Uh, you're right. Like, like giving him giving uh, if Olmo is super strong in the direction of opposing Melkor, it gives it gives a natural sort of um, foundation for Ase to sort of push back from or push off from. Yeah,
1: exactly, exactly. Um,
0: yeah, I, 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 also, I don't, I don't know sort of fully what the dynamic is as presented in the Silmarillion sort of don't fully understand the dynamic between Olmo and Ossie, but, um, but having, you know, having, um, um, you know, like, but the sense you get is that, that, that there's a pretty clear hierarchy. So maybe there's some, maybe that, that gives sort of Melkor his in also gives Melkor an in, um, you know, like, Hey, this is a real, really good chance to improve your lot. Right.
1: Right. Yes, exactly. Um. So it's it, it's essentially. I mean, it's 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 depicted as the the sort of the carrot that Melkor puts in front of Ase is um, uh, promotion, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. Um, remember also that the character of Ase is violent. Um, you know, right. he loves violence. Um, that doesn't make him evil in Tolkien's world. It just, um, makes him unpredictable and unreliable. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, was sort of easy in this way for, uh, uh, or, you know, this is, this is what made him more sort of capable for, uh, um, uh, you know, for for being suborned. Right. Um, now, Ase is given the uh, uh, is given the government of the waves and the movements of the inner seas um, and many other spirits besides, it says. Um, but this kind of goes back to The question about the inner seas and the outer seas... um, It's really complicated in the history of Tolkien's mythology. Like, you know, when Tolkien wrote that, the picture that seems to be in his head... Like, basically, all of what we would call the oceans are the inner seas. (laughs) Basically, the outer seas aren't even really water, exactly, uh, in his initial conception. It's, 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 It's very complicated, and I am 100% a hundred percent sure that we don't want to go there.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So that is to say, simply the the kind of distinguishing of um of Aase's realm and uh you know purview from um from Olmo's purview is uh, challenging in some ways. I mean waves and tides, it's it kind of you get the sense of him being uh um of of him being uh uh responsible for like coastal waters essentially. Um uh-huh. you know, so like when when a hurricane comes and swamps, you know, and you know, and, and waves come and break over and damage things, that's all say, right. That's all say having one of his uh one one of his one of his violent fits. Um but, but I don't know. Like I said, drawing drawing the lines of definition is uh, um, is challenging. Now, Nick poonzo was wondering maybe Ase maintains a relationship with Melkor and Olmo confronts him on it. Um, you know, maybe Ase goes over and visits Melkor too, and Olmo finds out about it and is like, "What are you doing? You know, that guy's bad news." I'm telling you. Um, is
0: there is there also a possibility of having um is there also a possibility of having um uh like like uh, Ase do something kind of aule like within the within Umo's domain sort of you know engage in some engage in some you know like personal initiative for for making something or doing something or taking a particular decision upon himself
1: well this brings us uh it's chronologically difficult of course um but david baxter was just sort of pointing to this and i think it's an important point to consider one of Mm -hmm. the moments where we get some clear tension between assay and ulmo is with the island that ferries the elves across to middle earth remember when it's time for the Teleri to go assay doesn't want them to go um and so when Ase finally agrees to, to, to you know, to bring them over, it's Ase who roots the island down before they get there. And everyone's like, "Oh, the elves didn't come all the way. And is like, no, no, I can't bear it. I want to keep them to myself. So, I mean, he has that sort of selfish moment. In the early, I mean, goodness, in the Book of Lost Tales version, Ase is, like, openly thumbing his nose at Olmo, um, in the, uh, in the, with the whole rooting of the island business. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's a moment where we get really open conflict between them, but of course, it's chronologically, there's no way we can work it into season one. It's, a, it's an elf issue. Um, right. Uh, David's point, when he raised it, uh, the point that uh, David Baxter was making, that, you know, how we depict that conflict between Olmo and Ose is going to... Um, we, we, it might be good for us to have that in the back of our minds because, of course, it's going to be very largely influenced by the um, the way we treat this moment, you know, his initial rebellion and, and, and reconciliation. Um, hmm.
0: Because um, you've got a bit of a dilemma on what to do with
1: uh, Ase. It's so actually yeah, okay. not immediately apparent. It's not immediately apparent, um, and well, we're running out of time anyway. Let's let let's, let's, let's come back. Table about, it. Let's come back to this. Let's ta- Well, well, no, not table. Let's just leave this for next time. Um, because we've, we've got a couple different options that we've raised you know, the possibility of Olmo kind of chiding Ase and, and saying, as Brian Federini says, in a kind of paternal sense, like, you know, don't go, and you know, I don't want you, you know, that guy's a bad influence and I don't want you hanging out at his house, right? You know, we, we could have that, and then him rebelling against it. That is, if, if we could certainly go that direction if we really wanted to play the Ase as, like, rebellious, you know, teenager. rebellious teenager angle, if that's the way we want to play it, we could go that way. Um, if we want to see his uh, his reaction as sort of more principled, we can. if we want to see it as kind of more merely arbitrary, we could uh, there are a couple different directions we could take that. So let's.
2: that's a good question actually to talk about between now and next week on the discussion board.
1: Exactly. So, so give me your assay theories. Also, of course, we're going be we're going to talk about Omo next time as well. So for next time, Number one, why does Ah rebel? How do you want to handle what kind of rebellion? What, what should be the character of his rebellion? And of course, the related question: What should be the character of his repentance then, when he returns? Uh-huh. How do we how do we how do we handle that? Um, um, how does he fit back in then? And of course, no no no, no. Connected with that has got to be Uunin and Uunin's character. What what role do we give her? And how do we play her? And then because she's a crucial. Uh, Character in that whole scene as well. So, how do we handle that? Second category then is uh, is is Aule. Um, How do we want to handle Aule's problem? How do we see it connected with these other with these other issues? Connected with the Morgoth thing. Connected with um, uh, uh, connected with uh, um, his desire for the children. Um, How do we want to handle? That, and, you know, especially in the context of these other rebellions or near rebellions that we're talking about, um, then, of course, we're going to be, but we're, I think we're probably not going to get to this until the next episode, um, but, again, begin thinking about how we would want to dovetail these things together, how we would want to structure these three episodes, um, but let's focus for next time. Let's focus on Ase and Aule, um, and see if we can get those two stories sorted out, so that then we can sit down and, in the next session when we talk about episode eleven and map out all three uh, of 9, 10, and eleven, so that we have those sorted out clearly, ready to launch forward into twelve and thirteen, where we will get uh, we'll get Ents, we'll get stars, and then we'll get the the battle and the final the final reveals. So. Um, yeah, Brian, I agree with you. Brian says that he votes that we start next session figuring out who Uinen is and what her relationship with Ase is. Yeah, we got to mm. think about we, we, we got to think about Uinen's character. I mean, really starting with, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, Dave, as we were just talking about, like, what what is the status quo with Olmo Ase and Uinen? Like, what's the deal there? What are their jobs? What's what's the relationship? How you know? How is that structure working? Then how's it going to be shaken up, and how's it, and in in what sense, and on what terms, and in what manner is it going to be restored? Um, uh, so, so yeah, those are those things are all all related. You know, it's it's funny because from a distance, all the way through this season, whenever I've thought about the rebellion of Asse, I kind of have just been kind of throwing it in there. It seemed to me like an easy one, you know. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's like a subplot that. You know, from a distance, I was thinking it was a subplot that pretty much writes itself. As we get closer to it, I'm having a harder time with it because yeah. it's really kind well. It of, seems yeah. sort of big
0: picture. It's quite straightforward and simple because we know what happens. But actually, fitting it into sort of the the story that we're telling is a little more complex.
1: Yeah, especially fitting it into like the psychology of of the you know the characters that we're building. That's that's to me the the most tricky element of it. Um. Mm-hmm. We can't just have him be a mindless, you know, like, mindless, crazy, uh, violent guy who gets wild for power and then decides, actually, he's fine, he doesn't need it. Like, how do you make that convincing? How do you really, how can we, uh, how can we really show that in a way that makes sense and fits with this other stuff? So anyway, okay. Um, Let's, um, so we'll do that next time. We'll talk, we'll, we'll talk about Aoleh. Uh, next time. We may or may not finish Aule next time, but that's okay. If we need to, we can finish Aule the next time, and then we'll map out all three. So, but focus on Ase and Uenin. Um, how, who are they? How is how is that going to work? And then be thinking about how we set up Aule and his uh, and his fall. So that's plenty of stuff to think about for next time. So, uh, so that... Uh, Hopefully we'll keep everybody occupied here as we're uh, as we're in the new year. We're going to have our next we episode. We only have a week. We only have yeah, a week. We're yeah, a week. we're having our, our first episode next week. So, um, sort of fitting that we're doing these Excellent. as a unit because we're uh, we're we're uh, going to be uh, going right back to back in weeks this time. So okay, so. We, can,
2: we planned it that way. As,
1: totally, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely <laughs> works. Yeah. Very good. Oh no, no, it's just you catastrophe. You catastrophe. That's, That's right. yeah. Um, uh, so very yes yeah, just by chance if chance you call it. So thanks everybody. Uh, thanks for all of your contributions to the discussion board and comments here uh, during the live session. I really appreciate all of your thinking which has really uh, certainly helped me in my own thinking about all this stuff I really rely on uh, on you guys. So thanks for that. And as always, thanks for listening and Godspeed.